Welcome to another episode of the Bear Steak Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ben Raman. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Super excited to be here. Uh, before we get started, I just want to acknowledge I'm producing this podcast in the lands of the Colmox, Clay, who's Homoko, and Klaam and First Nations, who were one nation before we settlers came in and separated them into reserves. Um, grateful to be able to produce the podcast on these lands. Um, so, Tori, uh, I want you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, where to even begin? So I uh, was born and raised in Portland, Oregon, um, and I'm mixed race, black person. My dad's black. My mom's white. Uh, Portland is pretty well known, at least in the States, for being very, 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 very white. Um, <laughs> you know, like least least diversity, uh, if we're going to use that language, um, like of any major city in, in the U S, uh, yeah. which was, you know, kind of, kind of intentional. Um, hmm. so yeah, that was, what, that was kind what, of what like, what do you mean by that? The state when it was founded, part of what was part of what was written in like the state constitution was that you could not live here if you were black. Oh. Um, yeah, it was illegal. So um, obviously there were black people who lived here. Um, some of them, most of them by choice, a few of them were actually enslaved people, even though Oregon didn't technically have slavery. Like, what are mm. you going to do about that? It's, you know, <laughs> it's the 1860s. Like, what, what, what's your plan? Right. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it was it was very intentionally meant to be kind of like this white wonderland i guess and wow. um so there's still definitely the legacy of that um did you know when that stopped being a law give or take they didn't take it off from what i understand they didn't take it off the books wow until like the 1940s wow so like basically right before the civil rights movement kind of started off here mm. <laughs> when they were like oh maybe um again it, it wasn't there isn't any documentation of that law being enforced here. Um, definitely people were, were run off their property for sure. Um, and, and run out of town. That was, that was a thing that happened. Absolutely. But, um, yeah, the, the, um, sort of legacy here is definitely one of, of white supremacy, or at least that was the intention. And so, uh, you know, settlers coming in was was a big part of of the draw because it was like hey the government will give you free land you just have to be a white dude right and so um on my mom's side my great-great-grandfather actually did immigrate to Oregon from Germany which that trip in the 1880s sounds like hell on <laughs> earth to me <laughs> but um yeah because he he was like he was given free land in Oregon it was like mm. In Benson County, there's like, here's your, here's your piece of paper. Here's your deed. Like, good luck. Wow. Um, yeah. So, you know, and, and so he had a farm there, like, and obviously it was, it, it wasn't actually his, <laughs> he had a piece of paper, but, but the people who had lived there clearly had been run off. Mm. And so, yeah, um, on, on that side of my family, it's a, kind of interesting because yeah, they were absolutely like beneficiaries of, of land theft like explicitly yeah. um and yeah so 
this is like where I was, I was born and raised. And, um, you know, I, I think that I was in kind of an interesting situation because my dad is black. And so for me, and because there were so few black people around black men around, um, and like my dad was just like my absolute, like my hero when Mm. I was a little kid, I just Mm. like adored, I like worshiped my dad. Mm. And so I was always, I was always looking for black people and like black men, especially in like, cause it was exciting to me. Right. Mm. Cause it's like, Oh, this is somebody who like looks like my dad. Right. Mm. Um, so even though it's like a really little kid, that was something that I was pretty aware of. Mm. And yeah, I mean, and you know, and everybody loves my dad. That wasn't, that wasn't like just a me thing. Like everybody, Everybody who meets my dad loves him. Um, and so it, that was, you know, that was nice, I guess, given the circumstances of being like, you know, very the only black person in the room a lot of the time. Yeah. And um, yeah, so that was kind of my my background of, of I, I was always looking for, I was looking specifically for black men as a little <laughs> kid. Yeah. And I, you know, it was very clear to me, especially back then, like the early nineties, that there was a a disproportionate number of people that I saw who were experiencing crisis were black. Mm. Right. Like that was just very, very obvious to me. Um, And again, I don't think that most like little white seven, eight, nine, 10 year olds are like out looking for injustice. Right. (laughs) Like that's not usually super on your radar, but, but for me, just because of this, like the circumstances of like my family, I, I was. And so that became really acute for me at a really young age. Mm. Um, you know, we were, we were never homeless or anything like that, but there were definitely, there were definitely days when we like didn't have enough to eat. Hmm. you know um um didn't have a car so it meant like my dad having to be on the bus for two hours to get to hmm. work and to get back uh you know things things like that and so it, i think maybe that sort of again made it more acute for yeah. me um because it was sort of part of my lived experience and was not not reflected um at least it not in any obvious way was, mm. was something that I was seeing, um, among any of the the white families that I knew. Right. And so that kind of, that experience was very, um, foundational <laughs> for me, for yeah. me growing up in, in this particular space. And so even as a little kid, I was like, I really, I want to do everything that I can to make it so that fewer people have this experience. Um, obviously again, had no idea what I was going to do. Mm-hmm. I was, I was 10, <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it just became something I was really passionate about. And so, um, in over, like over the years, like I, again, didn't have any frame of reference for how to do something about like the problem that I saw. Right. But mm. over time was able, I, I was able to figure out that like, I'm, you know, I'm pretty good at a couple of things. Um, <laughs> you know, one of them is people tend to appreciate what I have to say. <laughs> um, and 
I'm also pretty good at like raising money for causes. Mm-hmm. There you go. And so uh, those two things together, or I guess I should back up. People appreciate what I have to say. I feel like I'm good at distilling a lot of like complex information and data into information that is, I don't know, more palatable, just easier to understand than like than, like academic jargon um, or you know, or on like the flip side of that, I guess, just like some sort of partisan bickering, Mm. whatever, like culture war stuff. So I was like, oh, these are skills that I actually can use to to help make the world a better place. And so, yeah, you know, and part of it was because of the internet that I, you know, I was able to do that. Um, I started, you know, I started fundraising um, specifically for like black and indigenous people, but you know, kind of anyone who needed it, it was just sort of, I tended to prioritize like black, black and indigenous folks, um, just because like we have less resources to, to any kind of external support. Right. And so, um, and was like really, really successful with that. Um, you know, in, in the first, in the first couple, in the first year that I did that, I, you know, I raised, over $10,000, um, just by like having conversations with people on Twitter. Right. (laughs) Um, were these for like organizations or for like, this was for individuals. Um, so I have this really distinct memory of my, my parents getting screwed over. Um, Mm. they, when I was, uh, I don't know, 13, 14, something like that. Um, my parents, had um we were renting this house on this big piece of property some people um who were building a development across the street were like hey can we um use your property for the month to park cars because we have all these people coming to this big development Mm. um and they're like we'll give you two thousand dollars and so my parents were like sure you have to talk to like our landlord or whatever and they're like, okay, cool. So they do this, right? And um, this is like a big deal, right? This is mm-hmm. we're we're going to the food bank every week. Uh, it was, you know, two thousand dollars was a huge amount of money for for my parents. And um, anyway, turns out this this organization had not just didn't talk to uh, my parents' landlord at all. And so he was like, well, I need you to give me that $2,000. Um, and you know, I like, from what I understand, my parents are not very open about finances, but from what I understand, like most of it had been spent at that Mm. point. Right. Um, so like put my parents in a really bad situation. Mm -hmm. Right. Again, because it was like, this is a, a massive amount of money. Um, you know, I, I know that my dad was not wasn't making $2,000 every two weeks. Like it was not even, mm-hmm. not even close to that. Right. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> I was like, because of that experience, I think pretty, pretty explicitly, I was like, I like people, people that either I happen to know because we're connected online or, you know, sometimes somebody just like see on, on the street. Right. Mm. That, um, you know, I would just put something, I just put something out onto the internet and I would just, you know, directly like give people cash, um, you know, through 
PayPal or Venmo yeah, or yeah, yeah. Whatever, whatever the apps, right? And and it was largely I chose that method because to me that is a lot more efficient than um a lot of the times trickling cash through an organization that that helps people. Sure. Not to say that not to say that organizations or nonprofits or you know NGOs or what have you. Um I don't think that that's inherently wrong, but in terms of of meeting immediate needs, like that doesn't really exist no, exactly. in in most cases. So I was I was just like, look, we're raising money for this person. Um, you know, if they were comfortable with it, like I'd I'd like write some stuff about them, their experience, you know, maybe put up a picture. Again, I was always asking for for permission before I would do that piece of it. And, uh, people were really responsive. People Hmm. were really responsive. And so, you know, I kind of in that space, um, I had also gotten a, while I was doing that, I'd also gotten a job working at a neuroscience lab that studied ADHD and autism in the developing brain. Um, well, that was the primary study that, that was being run. There were lots of different studies. It was a huge lab. Um, and so I also had this really cool experience of spending years in this environment where, you know, every week there were, there were like, you know, world renowned neuroscientists coming to, to the university and just giving talks and you could just mm. walk into them. Right. Nice. Um, so really, really incredible stuff. And, and, and we were, we were encouraged to do that, right? Like we were encouraged to educate ourselves in that space. My job in the, in the lab was like half of it was like kind of administrative doing the financial stuff, all of the grants, you know, when you have millions of dollars worth of grants, the government kind of wants to keep track of where your money is being spent. Um, so that was like half of my job. And then the other half of my job was my boss who also had like the very distinct experience. He, he did, he did undergrad in, in South Dakota. And so had the very distinct experience of like being the only black person in the room for a long time. And so when he initially got his funding, uh, the, the university was like, Hey, we want you to like, come on staff and you can give us all that money that you just got. (laughs) And he was like, okay, I will, I'll have my lab here, but I need you to give me hundred thousand dollars every year so that I can support other like underrepresented postdocs to like come mm. to the university to get mentorship, to get connections. Because again, talking about people who, you know, most of whom the overwhelming majority of whom are first generation, like postdoctoral students, never mind, you know, never mind like uh, getting to college in the first place. Right. Sure. So there's, there's just not that, um, those connections, you don't have the people you can't use. Like you can't call up your auntie and be like, Hey, what did you do in this situation? Right. right. Because they didn't, he doesn't know <laughs> like she yeah. didn't do that. Um, and so having, having connections and support and community was, you know, something that again my boss was really passionate about. And so that was kind of what I was doing for work officially. And then like when I was on breaks or whatever, I would be online, like fundraising for people. And, um, in all of that and in, in the lab, there was a lot of study about, there's a lot of research um, being done on racial bias. Mm. And, um, 
the way that, for example, if you are, if you are priming people with like a black face versus a white face, the likelihood that if you show them a neutral object, like a wrench, if they're going to associate it with violence or not, things like that. Mm. Um, And so, you know, it's, I'm always, I shouldn't, I'm not entertained, but it's always interesting to me when people are like, well, well, racism doesn't exist anymore. Like there's no, there's no explicitly racist laws. Like, what are you even talking about? And it's like, (laughs) are you, are you arguing that there's no such thing as bias or (laughs) I'm like, I don't know what you're arguing here exactly. Cause like we can measure this stuff. Like we can see how people respond. Um, And there was also research being done on like maternal trauma and how that impacts like brain development and um, different, the different kinds of ways that that plays out on, on your nervous system as a person, even if, even if, you know, your mom experienced trauma, you know, 20, 30 years ago, Mm. um, how that kind of impacts uh, fetal development, fetal brain development. And so, yeah, so I was in this really kind of, interesting situation where I had all this information coming into me. Um, and I, you know, being a person who's not neurotypical, <laughs> I'm like, I tend to, I tend, again, tend to distill a lot of information in a way that makes it a little bit more accessible for people. Um, and kind of put that back. I can put that back out into, into the world. So I was using a lot of this a lot of this like kind of cutting edge neuroscience that I was learning about um, and doing some like doing a ton of education online um, along with God, so many other things. And um, eventually in 2019, I was able to basically pivot to essentially like doing anti-racism work full time. Mm. And um, I, you know, I use the lens of like, American history, colonial history, and how that's kind of built our culture and how culture creates our biases. And then we're just running these scripts, right? It's, it's like AI. It's like, you just plug in enough information over and over. You don't have to say anything explicit, right? Like it can just be visuals. It doesn't have to be someone sitting you down and saying like, just so you know, the white man, we're (laughs) on top. Um, Right. You don't, you don't need that. That's not, that's not necessary at all. Um, you can, you can, you have pieces of culture, like, for example, if you're going to go and see a movie about you know, a movie like this just came out, but if you're going to go and see a movie about say, like, I don't know, some hotshot attorney who like leaves their job in New York city to like go and rescue some hungry babies somewhere, mm. but you're, you're picturing a white dude rescuing like black or brown babies. You're not picturing like a first nations person going and saving white babies never you know never Never. you've never seen that movie that movie does not exist there's no market for it um and so just little things like that putting putting white people in those spots and there's there's no there's no alternative given right um Mm -hmm. i think in media we're just slightly beginning to get to the point where like maybe that won't be the case for Mm -hmm. forever Mm -hmm. um but there is a little bit more diversity in storytelling um and there's there are fewer uh gatekeepers preventing i think black and brown folks from being able to tell their own stories right which you know before the internet really was not the case and so we are you know we're running these scripts and these assumptions that um 
again, nobody has to say anything about anyone's race. You just, you tell like a one sentence story and your brain will fill in the races of the people involved. Yeah. So I was able to like, I would, you know, I was able to kind of like use this and start essentially like educating people and, and, and got to the point in like 2019 where I was like, Oh, I should pay people or I should pay people. Excuse me. I should ask people to pay me (laughs) for the work that I'm doing. Yes. And, uh, they started doing that, which was really cool. So, um, yeah, that's kind of how I got to where I am at this point. Um, and yeah, hopefully going to be able to, to continue to, to do this work for a while because it's something that I'm really passionate about. So no longer in the lab? No longer in the lab. Yeah. Um, the lab isn't even here anymore. It's mm. it's in it's in Minneapolis now. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. No longer a lab. Yeah, yeah. They they moved. So, so um, yeah. There's something just way back, going back to Portland. The Portland yeah. thing still throws me off. And I think this, you know, and we're gonna talk shortly about your the white homework and the stuff you're doing under that name. And this is a bit of white homework for me right now because I'm, yeah, I don't know a lot about everything I've learned about racism. I've learned in the last three years. Mm. Um, and so I was surprised to hear, you know, for example, the other day that I was reading a, an article about, I forget the, the the name of the girl, but it was a high school girl um, who uh, I think advocated and organized the very first non-segregated prom at her high school in, in one of the southern states. And I was like, mm-hmm. well, so, so this stuff still, this segregation stuff is still going on. I had no idea, right? And so I started learning about how there's more and more, there's lots of states that have you know, a lot of segregation things going on. So there's something to learn there. But related to that, I also have, have the assumption that I'm sure most Canadians like myself have is that most of the racism happens in the southern states. Mm-hmm. And that it's, you know, right. it's it's a southern U.S. problem. And, and that and even even the very little I know about things like the northern migration and things like that. But I don't know where that went. And what, I guess not to Portland. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, it doesn't um, quite make it up here. <laughs> and so, and, but, you know, a, a lot of my impression of Portland had always been, you know, in hindsight, I guess it was pretty white. I didn't really think about it that way, but was more around sort of um, um, leftist, mm-hmm. um, 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 you know, a lot of craft beer. Um, yeah. And, and, uh, and a whole lot of vegans for some reason. Um, yes, and, and, correct. And, and, uh, I am vegan, so I'm aware of that. Um, uh, but, but no idea that, you know, there was hardly any black people. And I mean, I mean, it's probably changed now a bit, but, um, so the whole idea that, you know, some of these places that you, that have Portland in a lot of ways, I think it's like Canada. Um, mm-hmm. uh, like a lot of Americans think Canada is, is, is the country with no racism and no problem and no, and no right thinking people. And, and, you know, and, and, and which is not the case at all. Uh, um, and so clearly Portland and probably other States too, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's interesting. Uh, we do have a lot of great vegan food. If you yeah. ever come down here, yeah. I, I can send you a list of places to go. We've got some really amazing vegan restaurants. Um, yeah. I'm not vegan, but I, you know, we still eat there because they're really good. 
Um, I think that that's, I think you're absolutely right on. I think a lot of people think about Portland very similarly to how people think about Canada. It's like, oh yeah, like that's just not really a thing there, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's, we solved it. Like who was, who was we, what is it? I don't know, but, but it was solved. And so, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of, I mean, that's how, that's how we're taught about Canada. And then it's like, you just, you just like go poking around in the data at all. And you're like, oh, this is, things are still very bad in in Canada. Not to say that like, I mean, the U.S. was much, much worse. I'm not, because, you know, because we had it kind of going both directions. It was like, oh, let's do genocide and slavery. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, so I guess Canada has that going for it, that it wasn't, it wasn't all in on the, on the slavery bit, just the taking land from people part or something. (laughs) We, We definitely did the genocide. Yeah, um, yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, and I'm learning more about slavery in Canada. It was obviously less. Right. Uh, um, um, I, there was, I think there was a lot of folks that were enslaved in the States and brought over to Canada where they mm-hmm. continued to be slaves. Right. Um, uh, and I'm learning a lot more about, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm starting to learn a lot more. I grew up on the East Coast of Canada in New Brunswick and um uh, which is just next to Maine, and 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 the next province over is is, is Nova Scotia, which more folks are familiar with. But Nova Scotia has a and it has a little community called Africville, um, and uh, it was essentially kind of one of these uh, historically black communities, like mm. like uh, you know like Seneca Village and others, mm-hmm. um, um, and. Uh, Worth a Google, but I'll share some resources that I found in the show notes. But essentially, the whether it was the Canadian government or the provincial government did the exact same thing in Africville and erased that town mm, and uh, and yeah. basically got rid of everybody and they turned it into a park as well. And um, and there's a whole similar story there of of sort of that kind of thing happening. So we we've got it all. We just uh, I think just the fact that we have. 10% of the population of the US so you just don't hear about it as much. Yeah. That 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 makes a lot of sense. And and to be fair like in in the states like we're not taught any of this history either. Mm-hmm. Um you know, it, it was really kind of up to the discretion of states and school districts and sometimes individual teachers whether or not anything was being taught about race or racism or um you know, the way that the way that we're taught history here and the way that our textbooks work, it's all very disjointed. It's like it's just like this collection of stories and you're not given like you're not given the through line ever. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, oh, this war happened. These people were mad at each other. Um you know, we wanted this land, but the people who live there were offended for some reason. <laughs> uh you know, things like that. And, but there's never any through line taught because the through lines are like racism and capitalism, just like completely unrestrained capitalism, completely unmitigated racism, the whole. And and so it's like, well, we can't, we can't really teach that. Right. Cause that's, that's scary. Kids don't want to learn that. Um, yeah. So everything is kind of siloed off, like vacuum sealed stories that we get that aren't really connected to each other in any way. Um, and it, it's for that, it's for that exact same reason. Cause it's like, if you told the whole story, there'd be a lot more going on here. Right. Um, and 
it, it's very odd, right? You know, growing up, I, I was born sort of like the tail end of the cold war. Mm. And so I got a lot of that leftover sloppy, <laughs> just like anti-communist, like propaganda mm-hmm, stuff. Mm-hmm. So I was, you know, I was being told like, oh yeah, kids in Russia, they don't get to learn real history. Like they learn, they learn Soviet propaganda. Mm. It was like, once mm. I realized I was like, I wasn't taught real history. Like I, I learned like U.S. propaganda. <laughs> it's like this very, like this very sort of polished story that we're given that doesn't, again, doesn't really have a narrative because we can't connect the dots because mm-hmm. the dots are real ugly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it was all, it's a very odd, right. For me seeing, especially like now, cause we're kind of on like the opposite end of like, Oh yeah, we'll just, we'll just do whatever. We'll just say whatever, like to, I get to just stay the president, even if I didn't win in <laughs> enough States. Right. Like just yeah. all of this, very explicit nonsense. <laughs> it is, I, you know, I think that there, there are definitely some similarities there and that we're not taught our history. And so it doesn't even occur to us to go like, Oh, what's the, what's the history of Australia? You know, mm-hmm. like that doesn't even click for us. Cause we're not taught it or even, you know, even like what's the history of Mexico. Again, we're not taught that stuff. And it's, because it's it's colonial history like these are the three lines um so yeah in terms of like having a critical lens i think we just kind of look at canada and are like canada never had slavery and i you know again like that's kind of like your your version of the story that gets distilled and somehow like brought brought down to the u.s like oh yeah they were they were better people than we were you know if you really think of it (laughs) no critical analysis being done at all yeah, and I mean, I think, and I think Canada, we just had a different group of people to hate. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, you know, there, I, I think generally speaking, there isn't as many black people here proportionally. I mean, I don't know that. It'd be interesting to know what sort of the proportion of mm-hmm. black people there are in Canada's population. I don't know the numbers. I don't know if it's similar to the states, but um, uh, but we do have a, we definitely have, I think, 1.1 or between one and one and a half million indigenous folks in Canada. Um, and, uh, you know, that's a good chunk. I think we have 35 yeah. million people here. So that's, uh, that's yeah. a couple, a couple, two or 3%. Um, and, um, and we, and we wiped out a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like we should have a lot more, mm-hmm. um, but we, we wiped out a lot of them. Most, most, many of them as children. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, that's sort of the big, the big, the big uncoverings of these days is, is yeah. you know, every week we hear about another, yeah, a residential concentration camp that uh, has discovered, you know, uncovered graves of children and and so on. So, yeah, it's uh, and then and as far as as far as black folks, yeah, I think we I think we the, the racism is there. It's there's a, the, the, there's more overt stuff in Toronto because it's sort of our mm-hmm. biggest multicultural city. And um, uh, but yeah, yeah, it'd be interesting to learn more about sort of you know what it's like to be black in Canada. Um, I imagine it's a similar story. I've had a couple of folks on the podcast and, and had, and sort of had sort of sector specific kind of conversations. And it does mm-hmm. sound, does sound similar. I think what yeah. we don't hear a lot about is, is the police interactions. And I think they happen. And I think we, we definitely have, you know, racism in our police work. We certainly see it with indigenous folks. Right. Uh, a lot of the stories are quite similar to the American story, uh, except the, the, the folks are indigenous. 
a lot of deaths yeah. and a lot of a lot of that. But uh, yeah, I th- we we've done a really good job at hiding our black narrative here. Yeah, yeah, I think that that. I mean, again, I think that that's something that Canada and Portland have very in common, right? Is that there is, even though there weren't a lot of black people, there there's a ton of black history. Mm-hmm. That again, like I, you know, I was never taught like nobody nobody ever mm-hmm. talked about it right um you know we we did we learned some things right we learned like smallpox blankets and and, and sure. stuff like that um but yeah we didn't like in this in the states um they were called indian boarding schools yeah but um you know we weren't that wasn't <laughs> wasn't something we were taught about and that was like that was stuff that was happening when our parents were kids yeah you know, it wasn't like ancient history. It was it was literally going on while our parents were in elementary school. Um, but it was I guess it was just somebody decided it was fine. Somebody decided this, like, oh, you know, for whatever reason, this doesn't meet the the legal definition of genocide, which it explicitly does. Mm-hmm. You know, and this again, we're talking like post World War Two, like we we know what genocide is mm-hmm. and it's illegal and we're still doing it to indigenous folks. Right. Um and you know Canada has a lot of Canada has a lot of Black history, but it's like, well, where is it, right? Mm-hmm. Like a lot of escaped slaves would go to Canada yep. because even even in the states, especially with the Fugitive Slave Act, which required people to return any 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 slave who had freed themselves, right, right regardless of what state they were in, you know, because of that, like a lot of a lot of enslaved people went just went all the way to Canada because it wasn't it wasn't worth the risk. Um right. So there's there's a ton of of black history in, in Canada too, obviously primarily on on the East Coast. Yeah. Um but right, it's just like these things aren't really taught. And so you kind of have to go searching for them yourself if you want to learn about them. Yeah. Um and like poking around in people's like theses and dissertations <laughs> like yeah. you know stuff that isn't even isn't even going to be published by like a, a, a publishing company right it's just like oh yeah university press put out your your thing and yeah that's where it's gonna stay for ever maybe yeah. i think your the point that you're, you said about you know how well there aren't many black folks in portland so there, it's not really been a problem but nobody ever asked the question why aren't there black mm-hmm. people in portland why aren't we hearing about black people in canada where are the black mm-hmm. people in canada people are just like well if they're not there like and i've i've i've, I've used this argument myself i've i've said many a time that I've, i i grew up and i can count on one hand the number of black people i knew mm. growing up um yeah. to this day actually i mean I, well prior to starting this podcast before three years ago i could still count on one hand mm. um you know the mm-hmm. number of black folks i knew and i attributed that to the fact that there weren't any around me. Uh, right. But, but they must have been, right. you, know? <laughs> you know? And so why didn't I know that? Why, why was I, why was, why was that kept from me? Or how was that kept from me? Or, or was it because I lived in unsafe places for, for them? Or, mm-hmm. who, you know, who knows what the reason was? Or were they driven out? You know, right. like, like the Portland situation right. and they're all in, you know, they're all in Quebec or in this Africville community in Nova Scotia or whatever. Right. So, Yeah. So, so you, 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 you're now doing this kind of advocacy work, um, and, 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 uh, and, and making some money out of it. So what, what kind of work are you doing now? 
Um, so a lot of a lot of anti-racism education, which for me kind of I, you know, I do try to focus it from this like neuroscience lens of yeah. of, you know, let's unpack the reason that bias exists in the first place. Mm. Um, because I think, you know, and I, I know that there are a lot of people who are um when they're when they're doing this work, I think that they uh I'm not trying to be dismissive or or any anything like that, but when people's nervous systems get activated, they shut down, like they stop listening. And mm. so for me, like my that's my jumping off point is like, hey, this isn't this conversation isn't meant to like activate your nervous system. But if these aren't conversations that you are used to having, it probably will. And that's okay. That's normal. It's just like your nervous system. I tell people this all the time. It's like your nervous system doesn't know the difference between privilege and safety, right? So if your privilege is being threatened, your nervous system thinks you're like physically in danger, mm. um, physically or emotionally in danger, right? Because that, yeah. you know, that's not that bifurcation is something that like humans put on ourselves. It's not something that actually exists in our bodies. Mm. Um, so yeah, like basically I am just trying to use use my platform and the work that I do to talk about racism and racist responses looking at things like like police stops right through the lens of like okay what's going on here in people's nervous systems right because mm. it's like okay you have two people who are who are super activated right because it's like our our cops are trained that way like they're trained to be really activated during any interaction right can we can we just Maybe give a little bit of a def what you mean by activate nervous system. Yeah, activated. yeah, totally. Um, so you know, kind of colloquially, colloquially called, yeah. excuse me, like fight or flight, but right. the okay. fight flight freeze response, um, is is generally like what I'm referring to with mm. with nervous system activation, right? Okay. So it looks a bunch of different ways. Um, you know, thinking again, thinking like. You know, my friend, my friend Erin was out camping and she's like sitting in this little camp chair. It's nighttime and she looks over and there's like a bear right next to her. Right. <laughs> um, so that's like that's a fight, flight, freeze response your nervous system yeah. is going to have. But also if you get embarrassed in front of your colleagues. Mm. Right. You know, because we all have these little things that happen in our bodies. Right. For for me, it's like the top of my scalp starts to feel hot and like tight, like we have these responses when we're in situations where we feel uncomfortable, unsafe, unseen even, mm. right? Um, that are completely natural and normal. And we just, we evolved with them because it was, it was advantageous to staying alive. Um, but the thing is, it's, it's, it's very much based on your environment in terms of like what is kind of coded into your nervous system to, for you to be afraid of, right? Mm. Um, you know, I think that like the difference between like my kids and like people my age in terms of, of, of how we were parented, it's like kind of night and day, right? That there's sort of like this fear-based parenting that you can use, like fear or shame, or there's this lens of, <clears throat> excuse me, or you can take this lens of my child is a person with a nervous system. And they're also, they're a brand new person. So they don't, they don't know what's going on. Right. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, there's no, there's no owner's manual. There's no textbook for them. Like 
we just kind of have to figure this out ourselves. So it's kind of like this control control narrative versus this sort of personhood centered narrative in terms of, mm. of parenting, right? So the things that say I was afraid of screwing up when I was a little kid, my kids can just come to me and be like, oh yeah, I screwed this up. What do I do? Right. So it's just, it's, it's very much like environmental. And that's the really cool thing about a lot of work in therapy is that you can then kind of build some emotional resilience mm. for those situations where you were not given any tools, any resources where you were not given like respect. Um, because those, again, like those little things, I think everybody, the example I use a lot in, in, um, when I'm doing, when I'm doing like lectures, um, is, you know, most of us remember a time that our teacher said something really cruel to us. Right. And if you think about that, you go right back to that time, that moment, mm -hmm, you, mm -hmm. because that was like, a, that was your body going into fight or flight. Right. Um, you, you know, you were embarrassed or you felt shame or you felt guilt or you felt like you weren't being seen and that like the effort that you had put in wasn't being recognized, like whatever the situation was, right. Mm. That, that you as a person were dismissed in a single sentence by an adult, you still remember that yeah. moment. Um, so yeah, it takes, it takes some work, you know, generally in therapy to, to get to the place where you can like build some emotional resilience for those, uh, for those types of conversations because that stuff is still going to come up. Like there's still going to be situations where you feel embarrassed, right? There's still going to be situations where you screw something up terribly and like everybody sees it. Um, there's still going to be situations where there's conflict. And so when we're talking about like nervous system activation, it kind of covers this really broad spectrum of experiences, but it's like anything from like feeling slightly uncomfortable to feeling like completely unsafe. Um, and, but when we're in that brain space, right, when our nervous system is activated, we're mm. not, um, your, your prefrontal cortex, which is all your decision-making and like long-term planning, um, and delayed gratification, all that, like, it's just like in low power mode now yeah. because <laughs> you're like, well, I need to survive this. I don't need to be sitting here thinking about like doing the calculations of mm. X, Y, or Z what's the best choice for me to make in this right. situation. Right. And so I think that, you know, and that's something that we see all of the time in like police stops and people run away from the cops. So it's not even like a conscious decision. Like there's comes a point where your nervous system is just like, Nope, not doing this. Yeah. And that's normal. Like that's a healthy biological response. It's very inconvenient if you're a cop. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's, it's not unusual. Like it's very predictable, I guess is what I should say. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I'm trying to, when I'm trying to talk about nervous system activation and how that prevents us from thinking clearly and critically, um, in situations where we feel uncomfortable, unsafe, mm. unseen, um, we then have a tendency to like lash out at other people, right? Like we have a tendency to, uh, sometimes we turn it in on ourselves and we start berating ourselves, right. And, and being just incredibly cruel to ourselves, um, sometimes we go into these self-destructive spirals that we don't even recognize, you know, until like four days later and you're like on your couch and like, there's bottles all over your kitchen counter and you haven't like done any dishes. Right. It's, it's like, it's very different for all of us. Like humans are incredibly unique. 
we know this. And mm-hmm. so, you know, in terms of, in terms of like what you specifically do or feel in those moments and like how long it takes you to like come back up for air, um, all these things are kind of situationally dependent, dependent on the environment that you were raised in, depending on the environment that you were able to be in or chose to be in as an adult. Um, all these things sort of blend together to make us who we are. Right. Mm. So we have this, like, we have this like nervous system signature essentially. Mm. Um, and we're just running the scripts that comes with that based on the information that's been put in up to this point. And so what I try to do is I try to help people like unpack all of those things. Right. And then, use that lens once we've done some of that unpacking to use that same lens and apply that to race and racism and you know whatever racial conflict uh things that we're and and um racial disparities like why is it that that you know in the states doctors spend way less time with their black patients than Mm. they do with their white patients right why is it the doctors prescribe way less pain medication to their black patients than their white patients. Um, Mm. you know, and, and then we're talking about, you know, then we have to also talk about systems, right? Cause it's not just individuals doing bad things. Um, you know, people, people are think people believe that they're doing the right thing. Right. Um, in, in those situations of like, well, I have reason to believe. And it's like, no, that's just your, that's just bias. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, um, you're you're running a script based on an experience that you had that you didn't investigate, you didn't interrogate, um, and you're going to then do something that you think makes perfectly logical sense. But if you were to actually sit down and examine like how you were behaving, it wasn't the same. And so the question really becomes like, okay, do you think that that was? Do you think that was right? You think it was right to act differently? Um, And I think that, again, it's like acting, behaving differently towards like black patients versus white patients, just just as an example, because I I think that's very acute and something that most people can understand. um, That, you know, there are there are situations where you do need to treat black patients differently. But then when we're looking at systems we have like, so there's this, um, there's this formula in the United States that, uh, doctors have been using for decades, um, to look at the labs of, of black patients, um, who have, I think it's kidney disease. I can look this up, but, uh, essentially if you are black, your, your numbers, your labs get put through this formula and you are basically downgraded. So you have to be in worse shape in order to get any care at all Mm. from the doctors right and i've heard about this yeah right and it's it's interesting because it's like it's not just again like if we're gonna sit down and interrogate this it's not just like oh doctors think that we're lying to them about how much pain we're in right like they Mm -hmm. think that we're exaggerating they think our labs are lying to them (laughs) which at that point it's like okay this is this is ridiculous right like this Mm. is actually absurd it's one thing i think to say like I think that you're lying to me and it's just based on like you had a shitty experience with someone in, in mm. high school or whatever. To me, it's like, then, then when we're talking about systems, it's like, Oh no, your, your labs are lying to me about how much pain you're in about like how much medicine you need. We're going to like filter you down based on 
like science, quote unquote science, right? It's, it's race science. That's yeah. literally what it is. Um, so we have, we've got like these individual choices and then we have these systems that are also at work and cumulatively it creates all of these racial disparities that we see. And again, I think that oftentimes it feels like, oh, I'm just being smart, right? Like I'm just <laughs> making a wise decision in this situation based on experiences that I've had up until this point, right? Mm -hmm. But, um, and you know, we see that this happens with women too in healthcare, just again, as an example, cause it's an easy one to like kind of latch onto, you know, the women are very frequently dismissed by mm -hmm. their doctors. The women yep. are not given the same amount of pain medication, you know, based on their like weight and health history and all of those things. Um, there's so there, there's so many pieces there. And again, it's like, you know, if you're a doctor, you're coming into a room and you're like, Oh God, well, I had this woman who was just whining and complaining. And I don't, you know, it's like, sometimes you just, sometimes you just gotta like make people tough it out or whatever. <laughs> it's like this, this whole, like this whole decision-making kind of framework in your head that you've internalized again, like based on experience, but you know, we say this all the time. It's like experience is not data, right? It's, yeah. it's like, it could be a data point, but it's not data. And so beginning to like give people, first of all, I think the um, emotional help people like build up some emotional resilience to be able to have these conversations at the first in the first place. And then to start to kind of unpack the individual and like systemic pieces of how racism plays out in, in society in systems and like in individual behavior um when we're just interacting with people hmm. wow and so so how, how where where how are you doing this work um so a couple of different places right now um i'm currently like in the i'm currently working on getting um some like bigger projects going but for right now primarily doing um so anti-racism training which is you know just stuff i get hired to do um mm -hmm. you know talking uh, and so i you know i primarily i do a lot of work with um schools with like early childhood education which okay. you know i i love um awesome. But yeah, like schools and universities, um, a lot of nonprofits and then like some primarily local businesses here here in Portland. Um, and then I do a lot of educating online as well. So I have I have a like a weekly anti-racism newsletter that I send out um, that's free because uh, that's something you have to clarify nowadays. <laughs> um, and. Uh, yeah, just social media as well just kind of like trying to help people like reframe things because again, mm. we're given these, we're given these frames and then it's like, you don't, you can, you can, your brain will just fill in the blanks. Right. Um, if you're given a specific narrative. And so, you know, I, I, that's primarily where I'm doing that work right now. Um, working on some really cool big projects that I can't talk about yet, but, mm. um, yeah, all of that will be like, once that happens, all that will be like in the newsletter if if that's something that people want to follow. But that's primarily like where I'm I'm doing that work is is kind of like online and then doing doing trainings. So, so bringing it back to Portland again, 
Uh, so you're doing a lot of this work there, obviously, uh, mm-hmm. locally. Is is does Portland now being a sort of very white state, but sort of leftist as well, mean that there's a lot of folks there that want to learn? Um, you know, I don't know precisely how that would shake out compared mm. to anywhere else, right? Yeah. I think that um, post post like George Floyd being murdered, I think that yeah. there is a lot more interest there. You know, there mm-hmm. was a lot, a lot of interest you know, several years ago, and that sure. is very much dwindled. But there are still people mm. who, from that moment, have felt like, oh, okay, this is something that I need to learn about. This is something that I need to continue to educate myself about. And there is sort of, um, I think that there is more of an acknowledgement here, even if it's, even if it's somewhat superficial sometimes, you know, depending mm. on like, you know, if you're talking about like major, like global corporations that happen to be here, for example. Mm. Um, but I think that there is probably generally speaking more interest, um, but there's also, I think that there's also more interest in like being seen as a good white person, right? Mm. Being seen as an anti-racist white person. Yep. And I think, you know, that can, that can absolutely be motivation for people. So it's not like something that I'm going to just completely dismiss out of hand. But again, it's like, if, if we're not also working on that, like resilience piece, mm-hmm. um, like, you know, what is, what does that look like? Like, sure. You want to be like, sure. You want to be like a woke white person and you like read all the books and whatever, but you know, if you come outside of your house tomorrow morning and there's like a homeless person doing heroin, Mm. you're probably still going to feel some kind of way. You're probably still going to like pop onto next door and be like, yo, listen, like there, you know? And so it's, it's, I think that there's like the intellectual piece of it is there. And I, I think that Portland is probably not ahead of, I think the intellectual interest is there, but I don't think mm. Portland is ahead of anywhere else specifically in terms of, mm. of people being willing to take action necessarily. Mm. Mm. Um, and, and maybe even more important than taking action is like being willing to like, listen to people who have been doing this work, right? Mm-hmm. Like, the civil rights movement is, is still in living memory. You know, like my dad Mm -hmm. was, I don't know, 14 when Martin Luther King was assassinated. Mm. Right. So it's like, he was clearly, you know, that's something you remember. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not like it was ancient history, right? Like all of, all of our American politicians, like, I don't know how this shook out in Canada, but like all of our American politicians, it's like, they all attended segregated schools and then so it's really absurd for them to like get on stage and be like, America's always been like this place that's been inclusive and <laughs> whatever. And it's like, you, you don't know that, like you can say those words, but you right. never had to experience that. You never had to like wrestle with like, what do I do if I do have a bad experience with somebody who's black or brown? Right. Because you know, for black and brown folks, like we just sort of have this like, oh yeah, like you might have a good experience with a white person. You might not, you just never really know. Um, you kind of got to get to know people first. Right. Mm-hmm. And, but I think that like for white folks, it's like, oh, I had like, I had a bully when I was in high school who was a black girl. Right. Mm-hmm. Or like, um, I was, you know, most of the kids in my school spoke Spanish and I didn't speak Spanish. So I, w- I know that they were making fun of me could totally be true like those are things that happen right i'm not you know i'm not trying to like dismiss people's experiences or feelings or anything like that 
But when that's the entire, when that's the lens that you then choose to use for like everybody else that you come in contact with happens to like look like that person or sound like that person who was mean to you. Um, like that's not, that's not being smart. That's bigotry. Right. And so, um, yeah, I think that, you know, when I think people, I think there are people who want to have like the intellectual conversations. Um, but you know, it's a it's a much bigger ask to have people sit down and say like okay you know what does it look like for you to have a boss or a manager or someone who has some sort of authority whatever you know i don't love that word over you who's a person of color like how are you going to feel in that situation Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um right so kind of like like I said with that story about like the, this hotshot lawyer like leaves their job. It's like, what does it look like to kind of flip that script and interrogate those things? Um, but then putting it into practice can sometimes there's, there's, it's a lot of work. Right. Yeah. And I, I think that, I think sometimes we do some like disservice when we say like, Oh yeah, come on in, like jump in. It's, it's great. Like you'll figure it out. And it's like, you will, right. Like, you, you know, if somebody pushes you into the water, you'll probably learn how to swim. Like that's your only choice is you're going to figure out some way to get to the shore. Right. Yeah. But, um, for, for me, I think that's not really a great place to teach people to learn how to swim. Right. Yeah. Like that, that doesn't work. People are going to do better if they get pushed into the water, if they've already been in an environment where they learned how to swim, that was safe. Mm. Right. Instead of just pushing somebody in and being like, figure it out. Um, so yeah, that's kind of where I land on it. I know like not everybody agrees with me and I, you know, I respect that. I think that there are times that, you know, protesting and like getting in politicians faces is absolutely like the right moral thing to do. Um, so not trying to be dismissive of other tactics, but in terms of like how I do my work, that's sort of, that's how I frame it. Um, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people do work, do the, well, I don't know if the work, but do some kind of work. Um, that's that intellectual way. They do, like you said, they do a lot of reading. They, they, they watch a lot. They listen to a lot of podcasts, mm-hmm. so, you know, they, they, uh, you know, watch a lot of movies or whatever, and, and, uh, maybe, maybe go to the odd presentation or whatever. Um, is this what folks, is that the same as being performative? Cause there's a, there's, a, there's sort of a, there's a, and I kind of want to get into that a little bit too, because mm. I, so the whole idea of sort of performative, um, you know, sort of being performative is some, is also something that was new to me over the last few years. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think that I was before three years ago, I was ever performative. I think I was just plain racist. Like mm. I, 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 you know, yeah. I, I, I yeah. wasn't trying not to be racist. Um, I wasn't, um, trying to be racist but right. i wasn't you know doing anything about things that i was doing that were in hindsight clearly racist mm. um um and uh and then when i kind of got into learning initially you know it was definitely there was definitely i think there was definitely some performative actions on my part solely because like many folks i was learning this through the pandemic mm-hmm. and so really the only way to sort of interact was on social media right. and social media is kind of like the place to be performative mm-hmm. um like it's really easy to be performative with likes and shares and and yeah. uh and, and and so on and so forth so i don't know i'm wondering sort of is that what you think these folks are doing or is it just they just don't realize they need to do more um 
and, and, and how do you work with sort of folks that are kind of falling into that performative trap? Mm, yeah, that I you know, I love that question because I think that there I think that there are a lot of of layers to it. Um, mm. You know, I think that there is a piece of there's a piece of like learning when you're first when you're first kind of being exposed to the work that like you're going to be mimicking people because that's that's how we learn, yeah. right? <laughs> like, um, I mean, if you think about like a baby learning how to talk, right? It's like, they're just babbling. They're not saying anything, but we engage with them. Like, like they're having a conversation with us, right? Because they're making an attempt because for humans, like mimicry is like how we learn things. Um, and so I think that there is space. I think there is space for that piece of people's growth. Right. Mm. That I, you know, like I said, I don't expect to be able to just like throw you into a river and be like, oh, you've got this, right? Mm -hmm. Um, If you've never taken swim lessons before, if you have taken eight years of swim lessons, somebody pushes you into a river, you're probably going to be fine. Like unless Mm -hmm. something goes horribly wrong, there's some sort Mm -hmm. of freak accident, Mm -hmm. like you're, Mm -hmm. you're going to figure that out. Um, And so I think with, with the performative piece, you know, there is, there are definitely people who are performative, um, but at least from what, what I have observed and I, you know, I try to, I try to kind of help people, I guess, like make that transition from, from the mimicry piece from performing to actually doing, Mm. doing work. Um, because it can be really hard if you, if you haven't ever like sat down and done like an assessment of, of who you are as an individual, like what kind of privilege do you have? Um, you know, what resources, do you have access to what connections do you have that might be beneficial to, to people of color that you work with or whatever the situation Mm is. Um, you know, when I, when I first started doing this, I frequently had people DMing me and being like, I love everything that you're saying. What do, what do I do to be (laughs) anti-racist? And, you know, for me, it was, it was, it's kind of like, okay, you know, if my best friends come up to me and they're like, Hey, I want to like, I want to, I want to, my anti-racism practice. Like I want to make that a thing. What do I do? You know, it's like, I know your parents. (laughs) I know like how much you paid for your house. I know like your job. I know how much free time you have. Um, like I know your background, so I can tell you because I know you like, Hey, here's some things to think about. Here's some ways to think about spending your time. Maybe think Mm. about volunteering. Like, you know, you, whatever you, had a family member pass away and you got a huge inheritance. Like think about like how you could maybe use that money to uh, support some folks. Right. Like, Mm. you know, and again, it's like, I'm not saying you, you know, whatever you get $40,000 and you need to like repair your roof. Like, I'm not going to be like, Oh no, like let your kids like just wake up in wet beds every morning, (laughs) you know, Um, because you need to be like doing the work. Um, I think that, you know, I think that like people's people's, uh, lived experience and and situations also matter. I, I don't mm. think that it's, I don't think that anti-racism work is a one size fits all. Um, I think that it's much more like an orientation towards like, are you willing to, like, are you willing to sit down and listen? Are you willing to like, look at yourself in the mirror? Are you willing to like, again, receive feedback from people who are, providing some sort of like critical assessment of your behavior. Um, 
or like a choice that you made because again it's like when we're talking about that oh my god like I just totally screwed this thing up in front of all of my colleagues or in front mm-hmm. of like my whole family um you know there's, there's that like fight or flight response that like gets activated and so you know kind of doing that that piece of the work to me is it's a process it takes time but I don't think that if you were in the process right if you're if you're trying if you're taking the time I don't think that that is inherently performative right Mm -hmm. um like we have to learn somehow Mm -hmm. um and so you know if if that's what you're doing and you're making a sincere attempt I think as long as there's I think as long as you're willing to like engage in that work um with some, with some humility, with, with the, uh, willingness to, to listen, to receive feedback, um, that you're probably in a good spot, whether or not it feels performative in the moment, yeah. whether, you know, if we're in a global pandemic and it's like, oh, I can't go and like have a conversation with my mom because, you know, whatever she's like, maybe she's two blocks down the way, but we, you know, she's sick right now, or my kids mm. are sick. And so I can't go see her. Or like, I know like they're immunocompromised, whatever the situation is, you know, I, I, like, I think that circumstances actually do matter to like the work that we're doing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I don't think that, you know, contrary to, I, I don't know, like TV preachers or whatever, I don't think you need to empty your bank account or, or like your 401k and like donate it so that like God can bless you or so that you could be a real anti-racist. Mm. Um, I, I think that, you know, if you're, if you're willing to start where you are, then like, yeah, there probably are some performative pieces to that. Um, but again, if you're willing to keep moving instead of going like, you know, coming up against, something where again you're feel maybe feeling attacked right or it's like Mm -hmm. i don't like how you spoke to me i don't like how this made me feel you know i don't think that this is fair to me because of x y or z um when you when you have those feelings and those emotions because they will absolutely come up um I think the more the more willing you are to sit with those feelings as opposed to like lashing out um, or trying to push back or trying to make yourself in the right. If you're if you're willing to do that, I don't think you're being performative. Because mm, mm, mm. I've also seen performative and with personal experience, I've seen perform the, the term kind of. Well, a, a bit weaponized. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I was, I remember I was told and, and I, I want to be told, I want to be told things like I want feedback, critical feedback. And I, I've gotten to a point in life where I'm, I'm much better at kind of accepting those, that sort of stuff. And, and particularly in this journey, I, I want to know if I'm headed down the wrong path. Cause you know, I, I, I don't want to cause more harm than, than I'm already doing. Um, so I had a, a, a white colleague, uh, tell me that I was being performative because of what they thought my motivations for doing the work was. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and, and I struggle with this sort of, not, not just an anti-racism work, but just in general, kind of the idea of sort of altruism and being selfless and all that sort of thing. And, you know, helping others um, that, you know, I, I've been sort of told and, and I struggle with it sometimes that if I'm doing this, with the end result that I feel good about doing it, mm. 
that that's somehow selfish because I'm feeling good. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and so this was an example where I, I think I, it was for Black History Month, I think. And I was sharing um, some of the, a couple of the podcast interviews I did with some black mm. guests. I'm saying, you know, took Black History Month, listen to these folks, because I did and they were awesome. Um, and the person told me that that was a performative action on my part because I was self-promoting my own product um, um, of the podcast. Um, uh, and I struggled with that for such a long time um, uh, uh, um, and did a lot of, you know, rumination and, you know, self-talk in my head and, and got really got really in my head about it all. Um, and, uh, you know, I apologize to the individual just because I, 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 I tend to say I'm sorry a lot. It's, it's, I, I fit in the Canadian sort of um, <laughs> assumption. We all apologize a lot. I do it a ton. It's true. Um, uh, but in, 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 but in the long run, I, I, I then also kind of reflected on, on, you know, the amount of work I think I've been doing. Um, and, and, you know, I, I got over it. Um, I and mm-hmm. decided that I wasn't being performative. Um, um, and, and that this person may have been using that because I don't know, maybe, maybe they thought they should do more and, and, mm-hmm. and was seeing me do something and didn't mm-hmm. like that idea. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I, I'm white, 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 white man and a lot of pri- place of privilege. And this person was in a place of less privilege, still white, but, um, um, and I have a position of power in my, in the organization and so on. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and so it just made me think about that. And then it made, also made me think about sort of this, this concept. I've talked about this a lot with folks of, sort of, of allyship. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm sort of of the belief after the conversations that I've had that, because what's something I see a lot now is, you know, whether it's in your email signature or, or in your, your biography of your, what your company is or the work you do. Um, people self-proclaiming themselves as allies to whatever movement, you know, uh, mm-hmm. usually it's anti-racism or uh, often in, 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 in the work circles I am, it's neurodiversity. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and it's great if you are, um, mm-hmm. but, but how do you know you are? Um, and, and, and so I'm wondering what your thoughts on whether on, on sort of, is do you think it sort of falls into that performative sort of window when you when folks start sort of self self proclaiming themselves to be you know allies to be anti racist to be all these things um, versus just doing the work and uh, not really caring what the labels are? Yeah, that is a great question, um, and it's something that <laughs> something that I, I think about. I um, I was on a run the other day and ran past this card that had a like it had a rainbow sticker and like in the middle of it it said ally Mm. and um i was like well for it was it was it was a funny moment because like i like i love i love rainbows anyway like the fact (laughs) that they're like represent pride is just like a bonus to me but um yeah because because of the work that i do i was like oh my god like how do i even feel about this (laughs) you know so Mm. i'm running and i'm thinking like trying to process like this this exact question like mm. is just slapping 
a label, a sticker on your car, being like, I'm an ally. Is that just like performative? I don't mm. know. And I think that um, some of it is probably, again, pretty context dependent. Like if you are somebody who lives in like a really conservative community and you're doing that, like, I don't think that's just performative. I think you're mm. getting in people's faces, right? Like, yep. you know, people, people recognize your car anyway, because you live in a town of, you know, 5,000 people, sure. yeah. uh, you know, and you go to church with half of them or whatever the situation is. Right. Like, yeah, I think, I think sometimes that's a, that can be a really good thing to do. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, if you're, if you are in like a, a blue bubble, which I don't know if you use that term in Canada, but yeah. we all use it here. Um, I, you know, I don't necessarily think it's necessary. I guess I don't really think it's necessary because I think that people would assume <laughs> you're an ally, you know, mm -hmm. like just being, it, being in Portland, I think that people are generally going to assume like you're anti-racist and you support like trans rights and, and it, you know, Put, you know we put the whole list together of like who you support mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right um i think you know i think that i think declarations can be a really good thing right mm. um i my next door neighbor has um has like a a pride flag and um another another flag up on her on her porch and i'd like mm. never you know i'd never seen her before um i you know i didn't meet her until i lived here for almost a year um but like having that up i was like okay at least she's trying mm -hmm. you know like at least she's at least i know that she's she's trying and she's willing to like put some put some effort into like making this sort of declaration of mm -hmm. like these are my values um you know because <clears throat> again it's like she didn't she didn't have to do that but um you know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, there was never a time where I was like, oh my God, that's so performative. Like, I can't believe mm. she put those flags up. Or, you know, it, if, you know, for me, it, it wasn't like that. Like, I, you know, <clears throat> I kind of think the same thing when I see cars with like Black Lives Matter stickers. Mm. I'm kind of like, honestly, I, I kind of appreciate that, right? Because your car is probably going to get keyed <laughs> for you having that sticker on it. Yeah. Um, you know, because that, that is like, at least even in Portland, like that's much, much more divisive than, than like pride flags just by comparison. Um, you know, I, I think that there are, right. So I think that like, again, if you, if you are somebody who likes, you have to spend time in a lot of more conservative spaces, I think, yeah. Like saying, you know, I think that, I think that, you know, trans kids shouldn't be like terrorized out of getting like medical care because you decided that you think that somebody's having surgery that you don't approve of. Right. Mm. Which again is like, most of this is fiction anyway. <laughs> like you yep. made up a thing to be mad at, but you're then attacking real people because of it. Um, yeah. Like I think if you're in that space, like saying like, yeah, I, I think that mm. trans people have rights. <laughs> uh, that's, that's great. I think that yeah. if you're with a bunch of, 
you know, with a bunch of your other like white friends who are also allies that if you're sitting around like patting each other on the back being like, we're such good people, like that's performative, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You're doing that to make yourself feel better. If you are putting something out there that like you're going to get some heat for, you're going to get some pushback for, I don't think that's performative at Mm. all personally. Um, And I, you know, I think that that's probably where I, where I ended up drawing the line personally, you know, you know, with the, with the rainbow ally sticker, I was, I was like, you know what? I'm not even, I'm not going to worry about it. It's Mm -hmm. fine. (laughs) Yeah. That was sort of my conclusion was like, you know what? They're fine. It's fine. Whatever. It's a cute sticker. Who cares? And maybe it's a, like a context thing for me. Like, I think like, I'm almost like, I'm, I got a lot of problem with the rainbow sticker, but as soon as you write ally on top of the rainbow sticker, it starts to make me cringe a little bit yeah it's cringe for sure and like and like i I like the idea and like i just i was just reading about a local company that uh it's a great company that's doing that does something around um uh, they 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 do all it's they do a whole package around sort of um, um, supporting kind of indigenous cultural safety Mm. Uh, but within that and like they monthly monthly groups and meet with elders and all this really cool stuff and it's it's a white kind of run company that mm. that uh, brings in indigenous folks through the education but they also have these little stickers that the folks can kind of put on their business to sort of um like on your window like oh, the visa sticker or whatever you know and because uh-huh. i've seen the rainbow stickers so i've seen like like a rainbow sticker on a window and i don't, I don't know what this particular symbol is that goes on a window but um but basically sending the message that this organization you know is a safe place for you Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, we welcome, you know, the rainbow sticker on the window sort mm-hmm. of implies that when you come into the store, we're not going to, you know, right. treat, treat you like crap. Um, and I think I, I'm okay with that. I, I think that makes a lot of sense to me to sort of have labels to sort of show that you're going to, it's going to be a safe place. Mm-hmm. But then when it, when it comes to sort of individuals though, and, and because I, I, I'm seeing this a lot in my field where, um, um, again, uh, folks that listen know I, I work a lot in sort of that kind of the neurodiversity space. And uh, and I see a lot of people, like almost every single practitioner in my field now calls themselves neurodiversity affirming practitioners. Mm-hmm. Um, um, like they all are. Okay. And and four years ago, they all weren't. Um, (laughs) And and so um, or they weren't calling themselves that. I mean, some of them may have been engaged in those practices, but um, it's become really, really a really popular thing. It's just sort of everyone just has changed all the terminology and all of their documents. But Mm. I don't I haven't seen how they've changed what they do. Mm, um, and, okay. and, um, to sort of be, be that way. Um, um, you know, and, and I, there, I haven't seen how their services have changed. Um, oh, yeah. and, and, and maybe they have, but I, I think it's highly unlikely that every single company on the planet has now changed their, has changed what they're doing. Um, and so I wonder about sort of, um, sort of when individuals call themselves allies, like if I, if, if I email you, you know, and my signature says, you know, Ben Ryman, blah, blah, podcast host, you know, black ally, you know, <laughs> you know, are you, you know, are you, <laughs> that alone, <laughs> are you going to read that and go, this is a guy I'm going to feel safe with, <laughs> right? Probably, maybe um, not, you know. Maybe not. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great point. I think that like, yeah, if you're, if your signature is, yeah, if it says like black ally, I'm gonna be like, <laughs> 
what? <laughs> but if your signature says black lives matter, I'm like, Oh, okay. Like yeah. he's with it. He's like putting yeah. that out there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that there is, there can definitely be, uh, the people can inadvertently end up centering themselves, Yeah, which is something, you know, we talk about a lot in these spaces. I'm sure, I'm sure you do too. Um, which, you know, again, it's like, if people are willing to like receive a little bit of critical feedback and like some pushback on like, okay, why are you doing this? Like what's mm. going on here? Then, you know, if, if people are willing to have that conversation, then I'm not going to worry about it too much. I think mm -hmm. that all of us are, all of us have, a, you know, from time to time, at least all of us have a pretty serious case of like main character syndrome. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, it's, it's hard to not think that you're the main character. <laughs> right. Um, so that, again, like that takes practice. It takes practice to like decenter yourself. Mm. Um, I mean, I think if you're, if we're talking about like, especially a, a white person being in like a majority, like indigenous space or majority black space or a majority Latino space, whatever, whatever the situation is, mm. majority, a straight person who's in a majority queer space. Yeah. I think that it can feel you there's the narrative is like, well, I need to be in charge. Mm. right like i need to be offering guidance because yes. my experience makes me less biased <laughs> my experience makes me more objective or like a neutral party or, and mm. it's like no it doesn't we we've told ourselves that for centuries maybe yeah. longer but that doesn't make you more objective you're not any more neutral than than a trans person or a black mm. person or you know a disabled person right uh, you just have a specific set of experiences. So again, if you're, you know, if you're willing to kind of like take some heat for your beliefs, like I'm always going to respect that personally. Hmm. Um, I think that if you're just like, I'm, you know, I'm an ally for X, Y, or Z, like, okay, that's, you know, that's great. But like you said, okay, show, but show me what you're doing. Hmm. You talked about earlier about, um, you know, have people done things like, um, you know, taking a look at their own, like done, done some assessments and mm -hmm. like, uh, taking a look at their own self. And I see on your website that you have some things like this. Can you, you have mm -hmm. a couple of uh, free tools that folks can, can, can try out and, and maybe use. Can you tell me a little bit about what those are? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, um, I have an anti-racism journal up that is, um, that has a lot of reflection questions. So, hmm. um, you know, those, those, uh, like I talked, you know, like I talked about the, the, um, you know, we all have that moment with like thinking back on like a teacher who said something cruel to us. Right. Hmm. Um, but going back on those moments, uh, and, and, looking at like building empathy, like from those moments, right. Mm. Is, um, something that I think can be really, really helpful. Mm. So I, you know, I put together, it's just, it's just, it's a list of reflection questions, um, for people to just kind of go over to sit with it. They're not necessarily things that you can just like blow through really quickly. Mm. Um, I mean, maybe if you've been, if you've been like in this, if you've been like really in, in the work and like trying to like build it like an anti-racism practice for example 
for a while, you might have a, like a pretty good grasp on like, oh yeah, like this is an experience that I had when I was a kid that kind of led me to Mm. maybe making these assumptions or thinking that I'm always right in this situation or like these types of people are some sort of way. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I, you know, I, I created, I created the journal so that people could with, with the reflection questions specifically so people can go back and think about those moments in their lives where, Mm. you know, you've had those experiences that were sort of, um, foundational to, Mm. you know, where you, where you got those, where you maybe picked up this, um, there's some questions in there also like about, about media, right. Mm. And like, what kind of media was just on in the house when you were growing up or, or mm. what did like, what was being consumed? Like what, what did your grandma always have on the TV? <laughs> Things mm. like that. You know, what were you learning about race from those sources? Right. Where again, it wasn't anybody like sitting you down and being like, okay, so mm. here's how, you know, you're on top. Right. Um, so with, with the, with the anti-racism journal that it's just like, giving people a space to reflect on those experiences and the ways that, that they've impacted us as people and the scripts that we run. Um, so that's very much about like the individual work more than, more than like systemic work. Mm. And, you know, but I think that, I think that it's, it is really important to recognize that, you know, the way that we do like news reporting in the States, like it's, it's documented to like make white people, more racist towards black people mm-hmm. because we show white people going to picnics and birthday parties and having fun and like the fair and whatever. And then it's black people are always like, Oh, there was a crime, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so, and you know, black and brown people are overrepresented on the news in terms of like the proportion of crimes that like we as a cohort actually commit <laughs> in any given city, like yeah. we're still overrepresented in the news, you know, mm. um, because that like keeps people's attention, I guess, uh, you know, it's, it's all about like eyes and clicks. Right. And so I created that, that specific resource to help people sit down and reflect on like, Oh yeah. Like what, did, what was I picking up on? Like mm. if the news was on every night, right. Like what was I picking up on if, you, you know, my, I was in my grandma's backyard playing after school every day because, you know, waiting for my parents to get home from work and my, you know, she was talking to her neighbor or, you know, my uncle or, you know, what, like what was being said around me? What was, what was just normal. Right. Hmm. Um, because I think that like, once we can identify those moments, you start, you can start to like, see the patterns build. Um, you know, it was like, what are we, like, what are we learning about race and racism from like, oh, I loved the Indiana Jones movies when I was a kid. Like, mm. okay, like, let's sit down and think about that. Like what, what was being internalized there? Um, yeah. So that's, that's why, that's why I put the, the uh, that particular resource up there. Um, because I think that that's a huge part of doing the work is examining where we collected our, our biases, Absolutely. uh, in the first place, because, you know, we, we talk about and act like culture is just neutral, right? Like culture is this racially neutral force. And it's just, it's not. And like, we can, again, we can see that in the data, we can see that in mm. brain scans, um, you know, the, the argument of, Oh, racism is over. It's like, well, again, like 
maybe you've never seen any, but it still exists if you're just looking at the numbers. Mm. Um, but I, you know, I don't think that white people are often asked to be on the lookout for racism. Yes. <laughs> so it's like, why would you even think about that? Again, like me being a little kid, always looking around to see if there were like any black people around, like that's not a normal situation. Mm. Um, that's not like a normal thing that a little child is going to be doing. Right. Similarly, it's not a normal thing for a little kid to be watching, you know, a movie and going like, oh, is this is this problematic? No, that's not <laughs> yeah, that's right, not how right. it that's not how it works. Right. Um, and so kind of going back through and like, OK, like what you know, what books did you like to read? And like mm. what were what were the narratives around people's race in those books? Mm. Right. Um, things things like that, because it is really those little things that get us to the point where I give you. I give you a scenario and you just start filling in people's races because it's like, well, that's the story. <laughs> like I've already seen this. I've already, I've already seen this movie. I've already heard this song. I've already read this book. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So that's, that's what that one is about. And um, yeah. And then you was, have the, uh, the personal assessment. What's that one? Yes. So that one is um, a lot more, that one's a lot more locked down in terms of looking at uh, culture and um Looking at media consumption primarily um, and, you know, asking people to kind of go through and and say, oh, like, go back over like a movie that you love. Like mm. what what are what's what's the racial narrative? Like what's being said here? Not explicitly again. Mm -hmm. Right. Like you, you've got to be able to like use a little bit of discernment, I think, um, you know, because it's like, oh, my favorite movie is whatever. There's no people of color in it. I was like, mm. OK. So nothing's being said about people of color. It's like, mm -hmm. well, is that right? Is that true? Like, is that mm. is that accurate? Because you know, there's never there's never been a United States without Indigenous people and Black people, right? Like, there's never right. been a Canada without Indigenous people and Black people. Mm -hmm. um, like, that's just not a thing. So, like, what something's still being communicated about those people? Mm -hmm like dig into like what like let's dig into like what that is um and there's also some resources in that one um specifically on the the media piece um trying to think here some but yeah some resources on like how news media is put together in this very like racially biased way uh and the impacts of that a lot of really incredible people here have been doing some cool work around that, like investigating and then like interrogating the way that like we put the news together and like what people are taking away from that. Um, again, you don't have to say anything about a person's race mm -hmm. um, to be kind of creating these narratives that get internalized. Yeah. So, Right on. And then one other thing I saw on your website that was kind of cool, because uh, you talked earlier about sort of, you know, putting your money where your mouth is a bit and maybe not giving your entire salary away or selling your house. Uh, but <laughs> folks are like looking for ways to kind of, you know, chip in a bit. Um, um, and it looks like some of this stuff kind of goes back to your, your fundraising roots. Mm -hmm. um so what are comes a couple of a couple you have a couple of things here that i see reparations friday and then pay the rent what, what are those yeah so reparations friday is usually um just a little fundraiser that i do on fridays typically if somebody's reached out to me to say like hey i need you know i need a hundred bucks for like gas and food for the weekend or like hey i'm 
800 bucks short on rent and I'll just like mm. fundraise for like that person specifically. Mm. Um, pay the rent club is something that I started because again, of that, that story that I told, like just kind of understanding the impact of like just giving people cash directly. So, um, I have used that to, yeah, like essentially we will choose a family and we'll just pay their rent for the year. Um, wow. And so that's kind of like, yeah, again, it's very much like fundraising, <laughs> fundraising roots. But, you know, for me, again, as like a very kind of data oriented, data driven person hmm. um, and someone with like lived experience, like in poverty. To, to be able to like give people some like breathing room, <laughs> you know, um, so that you don't have to stress about like how you're going to pay for food every single month. You don't have to stress about like, Oh, can I go to the doctor? If I need to go to the doctor, fill this prescription, if I need to do that. Um, you know, it's, it's like the, the families that we've been able to support have, you know, they've been able to like get car repairs and like buy washers and dryers, just sort of like really basic, basic stuff. Um, cause you know, people like I know here, people mostly need cars to be able to get to work. Um, you know, people have been able to like start therapy. Like there's all kinds of really great things that you can do. And like giving your, for, for people of color, especially like get, being able to like give your nervous system a break, like just a year off of having to constantly stress about mm. everything. Like that mm. makes a really big positive difference. Yeah. Um, right. If you, if you don't have to be in fight or flight all the time, um, there are a lot of really helpful things that come from that, you know, including like better, better decision-making and like, you can do more long-term planning. You know, if you don't know where your next meal is going to come from, you, you can't plan for the future. Of course. You can't yeah. go like, Oh, I need to make good decisions for the rest of the month. It's like, no, I got to eat. Right. Like that's where all of my, that's where all of my self-regulation is going. Right. Mm. Like that, that's, that's my, that's where all of my critical thinking is going. It's like, how am I going to feed myself? Mm. Um, yeah. So that was something that was really important for me personally, um, just being able to kind of give back in that way and like give people, give people some, some breathing room. So. I love that. I, I was thinking about just the term, the, 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 you know, the hashtag, the reparations Friday reparations is another new term to me. Mm. Um, and, uh, recently I've had a, have a colleague, uh, um, in, in our field, uh, her name is Denisha Jingles, and she does a lot of kind of work in social justice and protest and kind of kind of that space. And, and she's been doing a lot of work around in, in social media around kind of talking about reparations. And, and I never really understood what reparations meant. I, I kind of get it now. Um, uh, basically, the idea that um, you know both slavery and sort of everything after, um, uh, you know, and taking all the land from folks and, mm -hmm. you know, your stories about in Portland, kicking people out of the communities and taking them, you know, and literally taking their land away. Um, uh, yeah. and, and kind of how that sort of, how that affected a family generationally and, you know, both, both just in terms of living, but also just financially, if you look at sort of, if those, if those families were able to keep that land from way back when and build on it and grow and, and have it, you know, appreciate and be, you know, 
as we know, a $20 land in 1920 is now $2 million land now, you know, then, mm-hmm. then, then these families would have that $2 million land and then so on and so right. forth, you know, that's yeah. sort of a, a surface level. And, and, and then, and then the idea, and then there's, there's a, and you probably know more about this than I do, but there's a, a Senator, I guess, that um, has been spending his entire life sort of pushing, trying to push through reparation bills mm-hmm. in the federal government. And, mm-hmm. and it was anywhere from a conservative estimate of $15 trillion dollars, Mm-hmm. to a more realistic estimate of around four quadrillion dollars um, right. uh, is 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 what the government should be returning to, mm-hmm. you know, essentially black America. Um, and obviously there's lots of those sorts of comments of that's impossible. It's never going to happen, especially with governments, you know, governments, you know, can't do anything, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, sort of that broad span. But obviously you've got to keep having those conversations and keep pushing for that and hope that someday something will happen. But then if this, so when I heard about that and started reading more, I started learning about how there are a lot of kind of more community level, grassroots level mm-hmm. uh, reparations efforts happening where, where communities, are, where like local communities are actually raising money and actually giving chunks of the city back to, you know, communities and whatnot. And, and it just made me think that, you know, that's probably the way to do it is through more of this grassroots sort of local kind of efforts. Mm-hmm. And this sounds a lot like yeah. kind of kind of what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that you know, there is obviously a responsibility that the government has. Um, you know, if you're if you're going to build your entire country on like stolen land with stolen labor, then like, yeah, there's a debt that's owed. Like, mm-hmm. you know, that doesn't. There isn't a statute of statute of limitations on like, it's and human dignity. Yeah. Um. So, you know, and I think that it's it can feel a little bit messy but it's you know it's not like there are um yeah there's been a lot more movement at like kind of ground level um with ground level work regarding reparations um and uh hopefully i like i'm hopeful like returning like land back as well Mm. um you know, there's there's been like a lot more, a lot more conversations about that, um, and a lot more movement about that. I think especially recently because you know people have started going through. Um, you know, it's like one thing that like Europeans were very very good at was keeping records hmm. of all the stuff they took. Right. So uh, it's like yeah, those still exist actually. Um, yeah. So you know, there was there just like as an example. Um, I, you know, this is, this is more of, it's, it's still like a local, still like a local issue, but, um, there was a black family in California that, uh, owned a beach that was confiscated, taken from them, I think via eminent domain, um, which is a law that we have in the States. I don't know if you have in Canada where the government Hmm. can just take your stuff if they want it. Hmm. Um, and it's used, you know, against black and brown people. It's not, it's, you know, and even if it's used against white people, like white people have somewhere to go and, and black mm. and brown people legally didn't have other places to live. Right. Um, you know, so it was it was more devastating in that way. Um, but yeah, it's like this family like recently just like had their property returned to them, which is huge because, you know, 
don't, I don't know if it's similar uh, in Canada, but in the States, it's like property is more valuable than people. Mm. Right? So <laughs> the fact that this family like had their very valuable land, you know, it's like the California coast, like it's some of the most mm. like expensive property in, in, in the States um, return to them. Right. It was like, that's, that's, that's a big deal. Like I can't, you know, that would have been unfathomable when hmm. I was a kid. Um, so yeah, I think that like meeting people's little needs in the meantime, while, you know, we continue to like pressure the government to like get their stuff together, uh, is really, really important. Um, mm-hmm. you know, because again, it's like, well, we could, we could do nothing and just wait around for however long, but there's still people like in the meantime who need support. And so if that's something we can do, like, why would we, why would we not do that? You know? And I I try to encourage people, like, if you're someone who like, if you can go to the grocery store and like not have to look at the total, you know, Mm. or check your bank balance before you go in, if you're someone who can just go out and buy a cup of coffee whenever you feel like it and not have Mm -hmm. like, then you have a couple of bucks to chip in. Right. Um, you know, if you're somebody who's like stressing about how you're going to pay your rent every single month, like I'm not trying to put pressure on those people. It's like you have white privilege, so I don't care. You know, like that's, Mm -hmm. that's not realistic. Mm -hmm. Um, but there are absolutely people who like, oh yeah, like I just, I can just go out to eat if my friend invites me out to eat. Like, I don't have to go like, oh God, how much can I spend? Mm. Um, yeah. So I try to, I try to make it clear who I'm talking to. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> when I'm doing this. Um, yeah. But cool. I think that, I think that in the meantime, like while we're waiting for, for the government to figure out the reparations piece of things that, yeah, it's like we still, we still have to take care of people. Totally. Totally. Well, I love all the work you're doing. Uh, if folks kind of want to find you, where, where, where should they go? Yeah. Um, so I'm on mostly mostly Instagram at this point at White Homework. Um, my website is toryglass.com. So uh, if you want to go and or download any of the any of the resources that I have on there, or like jump on my mailing list, um, you know, I I send out an email every Friday talking about like race, racism, neuroscience, like building mm. emotional resilience, you know, and, and, and building compassion and trying to, trying to help people like find new ways of looking at, um, the problems that we've been told can't be fixed. Mm. Uh, yeah, that's, that's where all of that is. Um, it's just Tori I'm, so, I'm on Twitter still sometimes at Tori Glass. That's where I still, where I do, um, reparations Friday mm. primarily. Uh, yeah, those are kind of like my main, my main things right now. And, um, hopefully there'll be some like exciting projects coming up in the next couple of, of months that I can tell folks about. So that's awesome. Well, yeah. Tori, thanks, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It was awesome.